0: Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 175. I am recording this from a creepy Airbnb in Ithaca, New York. It's been a really great start to the summer so far. Been to Chesapeake, Maryland, Chincoteague Island, Virginia, which has wild horses, if you know about it. I've been to Ocean City, New Jersey. And now I am in Ithaca, New York, on my way tomorrow up to Rochester, New York. My guest for today's episode is Timothy DeVogue. He is a professor at Cornell University. He works in the psychology department and he specifically works on neurobiology and behavior. This is a little clip from his uh, Cornell bio, but it says... I study how the brains of birds encode learned behaviors like song or memory for food locations. Particular questions now being studied include the neural basis for female song discrimination and the interplay between the hippocampus and other brain areas in spatial memory. I study these questions in a variety of species in order to infer how these abilities evolved. So I'll say at the outset that I am way out of my league here. Uh, this is a Cornell University professor who is, you know, cream of the crop within his field and highly specialized. So I did my best to articulate myself well and speak in the correct terminology, but <laughs> it's likely at times I sounded a little bit crazy here. But uh Professor de Vogue is really fascinating and it was really kind of him to, to give me some time today to have a conversation. We were able to go to the university and to record in his office so that was very kind of him. I found out about Professor de Vogue because I was just looking up some things in Ithaca. I have a, a sibling who graduated from Ithaca College so I was aware that Ithaca and Cornell were both here or Ithaca College and Cornell, we're both here, and I know a bit about the town, but it's been a good ten years or so since I've been here. So i was just searching for some things that we should check out while we're here. And the Atlas Obscura site came up with a bunch of things to check out. Like there's a some people I actually reach out to and talk to uh, who run like a, a gourd industry and a gourd farm and make artistry out of. I think that's pretty fascinating. Uh, They unfortunately just had a death in their family, uh, which is obviously incredibly sad, and so we might do something in the future. But the website also listed the Wilder Brain Collection. (laughs) Um, This is a collection of human brains that's here at Cornell University in the Department of Psychology. It was started by a man named uh, Bert Wilder. And he started this back in the very late 1800s. And so now Professor de Vogue oversees what is left of that collection. We were able to to check out some brains. He's got one in his office. And he also has uh, like a sliced up brain that has had the water taken out of it. And it's been injected with plastic to make it into a solid piece. It it almost looks like, uh, hardened, sliced cauliflower cross sections. So really fascinating. So, uh, I was able to, to pick Professor DeVogue's brain here, uh, and talk about some some things I found interesting and again likely I sounded like I was kind of crazy and didn't know what I was talking about so he was very kind to, to educate me today so hopefully this is an education for you as well and hopefully you found it entertaining we were able to hit up Buttermilk Falls this morning you know that Ithaca has waterfalls and gorges all over the place and trails, so uh, hoping to do a little bit more of that tomorrow. You can check out the Instagram page for some pictures or the, the podcast's Facebook page. Both of those are... No, actually, the podcast page is The Voyages of Tim Vetter, and the Instagram is The Voyages of Tim V. All right. I also have a Patreon account. That is where you can give monthly, and it's a subscription-based service. Some of the kickbacks are shirts and stickers and postcards from around the world, that kind of cool stuff. And hopefully one day I will have uh, Patreon supporter specific content. That is the goal. Uh, but for now, you can give through the link in the uh, show notes for this episode. Or if you want to help out, you can just you know give some word of mouth, tell people about the podcast, let them know about it. That goes a long way into getting some new, some new eyes and some new ears on it. All right. Please enjoy this episode with Professor Timothy DeVogue. All right, well, Professor, first I'll say thank you. This is a real honor, uh, first time at Cornell, and you are an expert in something I know a little bit about, but I'm fascinated in, so thanks for for giving me your time. Of course. Uh, are you from here? Are you from the Ithaca area originally?
1: No. Um- uh, was born in Grand Rapids and went to high school and college in Michigan.
0: Ah, okay. So, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I'd imagine as a young person, maybe you weren't thinking, hey, I'm going to get into psychology and um, evolutionary psychology <laughs> and uh, neuroscience. Uh, so what was the the path that you took to, to come to here?
1: It was lots of, of steps by chance. Uh, One thing that stands out is um, I was at a pretty crummy high school Mm. uh, serving a lot of people who who came from farms. And I don't know how they decided on this, but they had an all-school assembly at one point uh, at which um, an evolutionary biologist from Michigan State spoke. And I was just completely blown away. I was completely fascinated by somebody really loving what he was doing by somebody sort of opening up fistas for things I had never thought about. This is, uh, Western Michigan is a place where you can find lots of people who have some doubts about evolution. Mm. And so uh, uh, I've come back to that over the years. It didn't have, I wasn't aware of the impact right then, but it's something that I think has been in the background sort of pushing me. In college, a math major, because I had some AP credits and... uh, um, easy to do the major. Yeah. But the courses I enjoyed most were psychology. And then in deciding on grad school, I decided on neuroscience. And I was attractive to um, several universities because of my math skills. And so uh, I was sort of in the first wave of people who didn't just describe brains, but measured them.
0: Wow. Is this where you also went to college?
1: No, uh, college was Hope College, Holland, Michigan. Oh, in Michigan as well, okay. And um, grad school was University of Illinois.
0: Okay. Uh, when, like About when did you come here?
1: I came to Cornell in 82. 82. There's a,
0: quite a famous uh, scientist by the name of Carl Sagan, who I believe either worked here or went here.
1: No, he worked here for many years. Did you work in with fact, him? If you have time, you can see the little house that he owned where he did his writing. Wow. He had a little place that where he could be completely alone. And you can see his grave over in the cemetery here.
0: Was he finished with his work here by 82, or...?
1: No, no, no. He, uh, he continued working until, I think, uh, 95 or 96. Oh, wow. And then got leukemia, unfortunately,
0: yeah. and died. But it sounds like it was a bit secluded while he did his work.
1: Yeah, and in the nature of universities... Uh, uh, there are many people who care a whole lot about original research. Yeah. He wasn't doing original research. He mm. was taking research others had done and then making it available widely. Wow. And so and so his colleagues sometimes, uh, some of his colleagues sort of looked down on him.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, I'm going to come back to your story in just a minute. But uh, we do quite a bit of traveling and largely we like to explore things on our own, but uh, also like to have sort of an idea of things to do. Otherwise, it can get um, a bit overwhelming trying to figure out what you're going to do in a short amount of time in a place. And so I had some experience with Ithaca because I had a family member who went to Ithaca, to Ithaca College. But when I was searching around, there's a website called Atlas Obscura, and they always post like, the most interesting things to see in this area, right? Uh, and one of the things that they had listed and a few other sites had listed was this like brain library or brain collection. Uh, could you explain what that is and how you came to sort of, I guess, oversee the current project?
1: Um, this is a collection, as as you say, of brains, of human brains. Uh, which at one point had several hundred brains in the collection. Uh, it was the brainchild, so to speak, of uh, Bert Wilder, who is a faculty member here, um, and Bert thought that there were important and interesting things that could be gleaned by comparing brains of different people and comparing, relating what you saw in the anatomy to um, uh, to the person's background. And um, Cornell was a place where, um, where people were trying out new ways of doing a university in comparison to the rest of the Ivy League. And so his, his approach was one that, uh, that fit here. Mm. And there were two ideas in particular that he wanted to look at. He wanted to look at the received wisdom, which was that it should be white, white, males at universities because they had the best brains. And uh, and so explicitly as he was collecting brains, he tried to pay attention to brains that came from people who were not white wow. and not male. Uh, and the um, suggestion that everybody sort of assumed was fact was that a uh, somebody white would have a brain that was larger than somebody who wasn't. Especially in the frontal lobes, you know, the, the areas that even then people believed were related to sort of higher cognition. Wow. And similarly, that, that there might be differences between the brains of males and females, but it would favor as well uh, males having the ability to do abstract reasoning to a degree that females just couldn't. And, uh, wow. and so he looked...
0: Now at this time, I mean we're talking quite a while ago. I guess then the the data is all like visual, physical evidence
1: of the brain. Right. So weighing, measuring. Yes.
0: Okay. And I mean, again, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, or not bit. I'm very much a layman at this. But the idea essentially is the human brain, as compared with most animals or many animals, is larger. And the the idea is the larger the brain, the higher the brain function.
1: Uh, whales have bigger brains than we do. and elephants, right? Yeah, okay. Um, And so, um, it's much more size of brain with respect to body size. Okay, I see. And so, really brilliant birds are birds like parrots and uh, blue jays and uh, uh, mockingbirds, which are, you know, creatures of a couple hundred grams, but their brains are very large with respect to that couple hundred grams.
0: So was he able to successfully challenge that idea uh, based upon like the actual physical evidence of brains that no, a human brain is a human brain?
1: And yes. And what he observed was that uh, brains that came from people, from men of Asian origin, of African origin, uh, of Native American origin, were no different in any discernible way from brains of men. Uh, From Europe, Uh, in no way could he find any difference. And then to go to the other, the other common belief, uh, after measuring the brains of a number of women and comparing it to men, he found that there was a difference. That in fact women's brains are, on average, slightly lighter than men's brains. But then he thought about that in the same way that you think about the elephant's brain, the whale's brain. Right. And typically men and women are slightly different in size. And so if you then look at that, at the ratio of brain size to physical size, in fact, women's brains were slightly larger.
0: Wow. So I would imagine that there may have been some resistance to his studies and his findings because there are people who historically have used... Know, scientific racism, or you know, gendered science, to back up their own hypothesis and claims.
1: I'm not sure. Uh, okay. I'm not sure if if they explicitly resisted or just said, "Well, you know, there's problems in preserving. There's problems in doing these measures. We really didn't expect anything to show up in the in these gross measures."
0: Okay. And you were telling me that eventually he developed dementia and the project
1: sort of No, this is some a successor.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
1: Wow. Uh, uh, as far as Bert Wilder was concerned, it the project was a success. He did make these observations. And in fact when he died, he donated his brain as well. And it's in the collection out there.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Wow. Um and obviously at this point, um, there's nothing that can be gleaned from from those brains anymore.
1: Not really. Now it's a a curiosity. And now we have the technique of fMRI. And so Mm. in somebody living, we can go in and and see how large the brain is.
0: You know, you were saying before before we were recording, we were hanging out and checking out some of the brains, and you were saying that uh, those neural connections and the memories, that they're still in there. You know, it's been the topic of science fiction books and movies that you could either, or we will either get to a point where we can, like, Download that information from a brain or transport it or take someone's consciousness and put it into a new body someday uh-huh. is that is that all fantasy or is there any sort of uh, does that seem like something that could be like a, a probable science someday
1: um, it's certainly fantasy right now mm. it's certainly certainly just just sort of a Something weird to muse about. But think about... um, Well, a number of years ago, I had a general anesthetic to have my wisdom teeth taken out. And I remember feeling the coldness of the fluid in a vein. And the next instant, I was opening my eyes and everything had been done. Uh, There was a period of time i don't know how long 2 hours where my brain was completely turned off yet when i woke up again i had my memories i had my i knew who i was i knew what i had done i knew who the people were who were around me and that's the way i think about those brains out there that in essence they've been turned completely off for some of them 60 70 80 years but those connections are still there. They're not functional, but they're still there. And so, at least hypothetically, if we were able to deal with the number of neurons and the, the huge, uncountable number of connections between them, and we were able to electronically get things moving again, there would be a readout of that person's experience.
0: Wow. Wow. That's really wild. It's a little bit scary, actually. I don't know, because then the idea is like maybe someday in the future when your, your body and your consciousness is shut off in 100 years, maybe your brain could be, could be turned, back, turned back on and people can read and see the experiences that you have. And
1: it's stuff had. Of science fiction yeah. that, that then the, that information could populate a computer and you wouldn't even need a physical body anymore.
0: Wow. That's like the next evolution then of, of humans maybe or whatever the next step is. Yeah, it's like a Black Mirror episode. <laughs> it's really, yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, you mentioned birds and I saw uh, in researching you a bit that you've done a lot of work in that field. Um, can you explain like what that is and how you came to that work?
1: Uh, so since graduate school, I've been interested in changes in the brain that are associated with learning. Uh, in grad school, I did experiments on rats, Uh, I became allergic to the rats uh, and I thought the experiments that we were doing were sort of boring. Mm -hmm. And so as I finished grad school, I found out about the research of of, uh, Fernando Nottebaum, who was uh, a scientist who had started studying uh, neurobiology of song learning in birds. And I thought that that was just fascinating. And so after I finished my PhD, I went and worked with him for three years, uh, uh, trying to start to look for changes that would happen in the brain of a bird as it learned a song. Uh, and, and then over the time at Cornell, that's branched out firstly to studying spatial learning, uh, which is carried out by a different part of the brain. And then in more recent years, what I've been looking at is evolution of these capacities? How is it that a mockingbird uh, has a brain capable of learning hundreds of different songs, whereas a typical sparrow can only sing four, five, six notes? Uh, what is it about the brain that's different and how did it get to be that way? And so that's, that's been the substance of my research during my time here.
0: Is that work also done using brain scans?
1: I did the first uh, MRI study in a bird. Wow. But the resolution uh, is, you know, even a very good MRI machine is about an eighth of an inch. And that's okay for looking at things in us. But in a bird where the whole brain is, you know, half an inch, five eighths of an inch long, that's not nearly good enough resolution to see anything useful.
0: Is that vocalization, or, or maybe the correct term is actually song? Uh, you know, through a very elementary understanding of nature, I would assume that has to do uh, with like attracting a mate. Are there other reasons why?
1: Um, yeah, you could uh, you could have a territory, and you could be fending off other males, so that if you're singing there, they can listen and say, if I go to that tree, I might have to uh. fight. Whereas if I stay over here, I'm fine. Uh, later on, uh, it's the, the song is used for individual recognition. So a female can find her mate based on how he sounds versus someone else. And other birds in the area can know, hey, that's Joe. That's Joe singing from where he's supposed to sing. All's right with the world.
0: Wow. And then is that, um, is that representative of certain, let's say you mentioned um, like a sparrow only being able to hit like five notes. Is that representative of having lower brain function?
1: It's representative of having particular areas in the brain that are involved in learning being much smaller and having fewer cells in them.
0: Ah, okay.
1: Which in turn goes back to development. Fewer cells develop there, which in turn goes back to evolution. Why were there not the evolutionary signals? to keep building cells in that area? Or why were there the evolutionary signals to build more cells in a different species?
0: Wow, that's really interesting. And then are you able to then like translate that same idea over to the human brain?
1: Well, we too have, have areas of our brain uh, that are especially involved in, in fine motor control. Like, like we use in language, moving our lips and tongue around. Mm. Uh, which we acquire slowly in, in kids, you know, over the first two or three years of life. Uh, in, in birds, it's, it's over a period of months, usually, for learning a song. And we have other areas of our brain that are involved, sorry, involved in other kinds of, of learning. That seems to be a, a principle across all vertebrates, that, that you dedicate different brain regions to different kinds of learning.
0: Wow. You know, you mentioned uh, spatial awareness, and I might be totally incorrect in saying this, but just like daily observation, you know, human beings, and maybe it's because there's so much stimulus that we're taking in, uh, we mess up a lot. We we trip. We miss things. Uh, Sometimes we go to put the car key in, and we miss the hole where the key goes in. You don't often see... Animals making mistakes, right? So, like, if a bird's coming onto a like going to land on a branch or on a limb, you don't often see that bird miss and crash into the tree trunk. Is that a? I don't know if there's an understanding of this, but is that maybe a product of having fewer functions that it needs to do? That it's like a master of the few things?
1: Not at all. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, the the same kinds of abilities that we have are in birds. Uh, or, or other, other vertebrates, for that matter. And yes, some of them would get more emphasized or less emphasized. But I think when, when you say that you don't often see them making mistakes, it's because you're not often watching. Okay. And so uh, I studied the spatial learning in chickadees, common North American species, uh, which go and hide, I don't know, 100, 150, 200 seeds in the fall and remember where those seeds are over a period of weeks. Wow. So that if there's a sudden storm, they always have food. But they don't remember where all of them are. They remember where 60, 70% are. And so they're not perfect either. Uh, okay. They're just doing their best. And one more anecdote. You know, all of us know that squirrels live in trees and squirrels do amazing feats in trees. And several years ago, I was uh, uh, a couple blocks away from here watching a squirrel cross the street on a telephone cable. And I thought, what a smart squirrel to (laughs) avoid the problems of cars. You know, this is a squirrel that's not going to get squashed by a car. And as I was just standing there watching it, it slipped and fell and died. Wow. And so squirrels make mistakes too. That's very much
0: like the Truman Show, if you're familiar with that movie. Like somebody heard you having that thought <laughs> and knocked that squirrel off. Wow. You know, I was thinking um, evolutionarily, well, I guess maybe the uh, leading up to my thought, there's a question in that, um, is the idea that the larger brain developed in humans because of either the agricultural revolution or like the access to uh, proteins and calories and things like that?
1: There's a lot of discussion about that. Uh, Certainly, you know, the data are consistent with uh, once we learned how to cook food, we were able to get sufficient calories. Uh, Data are also consistent with um, uh, as we started living in larger social groups, you need a larger brain to keep track of of uh, the quality of your interactions with lots of other individuals, mm. um, the mechanism in us seems to be that just that brain growth is prolonged, uh, and so what is it that's developing last? Well, it's it's um, cortex in general and prefrontal cortex in particular, and so the developmental trajectory just lasts a bit longer in us than our nearest relatives. I see, which. Given the the functions of those areas makes it possible for us to um, not just have complex social relations, but to have abstract thought about those complex social relations.
0: yeah, you know uh, I guess that leads into the point pretty well or or the thought that I was having that for most of human history, uh, we lived very much the same way for a very long amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then the agricultural revolution hits and, sort of in a strange way, I guess, starts up at the same time in different locations that um, didn't even have contact with each other. Uh, but then, since that time, which has been a few thousand years, you have this just rapid um, industrialization, technological innovation to the point where, like, we've only had electricity for not much longer than 100 years. And, and right. we've only been lighting things up for that amount of time. And we've had social media for about 15-ish years. Um, have you done any work or know much about like the effect that that's having on our on our brain development?
1: Uh, I've not done work on it, and I'm not really aware of it. Um, where I would go in, in, in answering that question is plasticity one of the hallmarks of our brain? Is adaptability to lots of things? Mm. Uh, it's it's a way of designing a very complex apparatus. If you don't have to have all the the uh, instructions specified, but instead can allow experience to to specify things. So when we're when we're born, we. Our brain is, is really doesn't have very many of the connections that it's ultimately going to have. We develop those as we develop behaviors. Uh, if somebody has short legs, they start to walk and develop the brain connections to direct walking that's appropriate for short legs. They don't have to have the connections built into their brain for having short legs and long legs and in-between legs. Mm. They don't have to have the connections built in for... Uh, knowing how to speak Arabic and Chinese and English and Zulu. Mm. Rather, as they start encountering a language, they build the connections to to encode that language. And so I guess where I'd go with your question is that I'm sure we are modifying connections that make use of social media possible, easy. Uh, I know that lots of my students can do things with their thumbs that I can't. but I see that as simply using our brains, the way our brains were were built, were designed, to be able to adapt to, to things that are around.
0: I see. In the world of high school education, we it's pretty common that we all have to read a text um, called uh, Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck, I think her name is. Um, and... A, Simple way of explaining what that book about is about is that um, a lot of people think that people have innate abilities, but that uh, you know no one is born you know air quotes here dumb. That everyone has the ability to learn, uh, but you you know you look at some people who are, are true geniuses. Um, so I, I don't know with among humans or even maybe amongst other animal species, are there. Are some organisms born with uh, natural pro- proclivity to, you know, having better brain function or learning abilities?
1: As a psychologist and neuroscientist, yes, you're right. Uh, we do not understand extreme abilities. I mean, we just don't. We can't. We can come up with some correlations, maybe for for particular pathways in the brain that seem to be a bit larger or smaller. Uh, but, but we can't predict it, and uh, and we certainly can't cause it. Mm. Uh, so, an Isaac Newton, an Albert Einstein, uh, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary people. We simply can't explain it. Okay. Yeah. Or, for that matter, the people who who can learn thousands of digits of pi. Uh, yeah. You know, the really extraordinary people. We just don't understand them.
0: Does that, uh, is there evidence of that in other animal species?
1: Uh, there is certainly evidence of variation. Um, my research has been on on song learning. and if you look at species, especially species that that have more than the bare minimum of song learning, you see variation. You see that there are some individuals that will learn uh, 50 different notes and somebody else only 30 or 35. Mm.
0: Wow. I, I appreciate you answering all these. I know I'm like rapid fire right now, but my bra- my own brain keeps popping with all these ideas. Um, I've heard before, and I'll try to get this right, but there's been, I guess, maybe fMRI uh, brain scans of people who are all uh, playing music together. And it's showing that the same regions of their brain are highly... Active at the same time. And it appears as if something is happening there. I don't know if it's correct to call it a hive mind or something like that. Some type of con- connectivity between the
1: consciousness. Is
0: is that something you've ever witnessed either in, in human or other animal
1: species? Uh, I'm just just personally, I'm aware of when I'm engaging with somebody and feel very much in sync. Mm. That's the way we describe it. Uh, And I think that, and you don't have to posit something mystical outside. Okay. Just the capacity for talking and looking at each other uh, can give you the feeling like you're on the same wavelength. We use those words. But it's coming out of vision. It's coming out of hearing. It's coming out of uh, uh, a a sense of having a shared experience.
0: Mm. I guess to that point, and it, it sort of touches on an earlier point. I'll give a, a metaphor, I guess. But <laughs> let's say, let's say you—the metaphor is an iceberg, right? And the full iceberg is what we understand about the brain and its abilities. The part above water is what we know, and the part below water is like what we've yet to learn and don't know. Like, how, can, can you estimate uh, how much of that? knowledge is underwater that we we don't yet know about?
1: I would use a different metaphor. Okay. I'd use a physics metaphor of of, uh, people a couple hundred years ago getting really excited at working out the different elements, that there's carbon, there's there's Mm -hmm. iron, there's uh, oxygen making up the world. And then a bit later on, getting really excited that carbon and oxygen and iron are made up of protons and electrons and neutrons. And, you know, travel another hundred years and uh, people getting really excited that, that uh, uh, the electrons can exist as sort of a wave state and sort of a particle state. And with the protons and the neutrons, if you smash them into each other, they break into these very weird particles that, that uh, you know, have, have strange properties associated with them. You get where I'm going, right? Yeah, that, that essentially as, and then as there's quarks and
0: anti-quarks. And <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah.
1: and, and, and so uh, if, if you had asked somebody in the early 1800s, he would have said, you know, we're getting close to knowing, pick a percent, 50%, 60%, 70% of what the world's made of because we're able to describe all these elements. Uh, and then with having understood that, And moving into this different level, you realize that there's a whole world there that you hadn't known anything about before. It's the same with the brain. We know a whole lot now of the basis of sensory perception. We know a whole lot about how it is that strokes cause particular kinds of deficits. We know a whole lot about uh, how neurons uh, are formed and go into the right places and how they form connections with other neurons. Um, we don't know a whole lot about how your brain is different from
0: mine.
1: Mm. Um, we don't know a whole lot about a whole bunch of different pathologies. Uh, why is it that some large percentage of Americans feel depression, you know, is sometime in a year? And as as we said a few minutes ago, we don't know much at all about the truly extraordinary people that that you know are not part of our normal experience.
0: Yeah. Is there a way, or do we know of a way, that somebody can consciously or purposefully um, create new neural connections? Is there, is there something that people can engage in? Sure.
1: Start doing something new. Do you play the violin? I do not. <laughs> if you started practicing the violin tomorrow, I guarantee that within a week you'll have millions of new nerve connections. Millions.
0: And, and is that something you can actually see?
1: And? With, over the course of a few weeks, you could start to see differences in the functioning of auditory cortex and motor cortex, yes. Wow. Have you done a scan of your own brain? I have not, no. Is that something that you can do one day? Uh, I'd, I'd be interested in looking at it,
0: yeah. Yeah. Wow, I would imagine that like all of your students might want to do that.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, wow. Um, you know, obviously, on the podcast... Uh, I've had people from all around the world and we talk about going all around the world. We were mentioning briefly before, but I also read a bit online about work you've done in Colombia. I'd love if you could share what that work was and what your experiences
1: were. Um I recognize that I'm in a pretty special place. I recognize that to be a professor at an Ivy League school is you know, in terms of academics it's it's pretty nice. Mm. I also recognize that it's completely an accident that I'm here, an accident of decisions I made in high school and college, of course, but also the accident about being born white and male in the United States with parents who valued education. Uh, and so for, for a long time, uh, I've done teaching in the third world, uh, and over the last eight or nine years, I've created a bunch of programs to, um, to just try in a tiny way to make some of this privilege available to others. And so uh, I've done a number of programs where I find undergraduates in the sciences in Latin America and set things up so they can come and work in a research lab here at Cornell during the summer for periods actually from two months to six months. And I think I don't have an exact number but somewhere i think between 2 and 300 people have come in to do that because they don't they're they don't typically get research experience yeah even even at a good university in latin america and so many of those people have gone on now to finish their undergrad degree and go on to do graduate work that they got excited about by coming here um uh, uh there's a there's a whole bunch of programs like that, and it's 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 sort of a little bit under the radar of Cornell. Uh, it's something I do in my as 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 I have free time, wow. but it's something that's also been really thrilling.
0: I would imagine that Cornell would maybe have like the most state of the art technology within this field
1: within which field
0: Within the field of neuroscience and
1: But this isn't this stuff isn't neuroscience. Oh. This is agriculture, it's physics, oh, it's wow. astronomy, it's you name it. Anywhere in the sciences.
0: Oh, that's so cool. That's such a great opportunity for people. Wow. I was thinking about something I know I'm, I'm, the tangents are all over the place. So, um, So I apologize, but um, you mentioned before like there we don't quite know why people maybe get depressed at certain times of the year, maybe like seasonal affect disorder rate or something like that. Um, but right now, this is an incredibly stressful time in the United States between social and political unrest, uh, obviously a global pandemic that's hit our country really hard. Um, income inequality, uh, pretty <laughs> pretty stressful uh, presidential cabinet for the past four years. Um, from a psychology perspective, I guess, um, and maybe it goes back to sort of the collective idea, but um, is there any evidence maybe throughout history of, like, uh, maybe I, I guess I'm answering my own question in my own head, but like, uh, historical time periods or historical circumstances that created or had a collective effect on either brain development or people's psychology. I'd imagine so.
1: Yeah. I... I uh, just wondering where to go with that. <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, there, there have been uh, periods of time in, in, in human history, in Western history, that are much more stressful than what we're experiencing now. I mean, the lead-up and and World War II, uh, uh, where where the possibility of being bombed from the air was coupled with the possibility of starving, or being arrested by the Gestapo if you were in Western Europe, um, and that has that kind of severe, prolonged stress has effects on, on physiology and on behavior. What's been really interesting to me over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, has been the discovery that that kind of severe prolonged stress not only has an impact on the individual, as of course you'd expect it to, it has an impact on that individual's offspring in a way that's not simply the, the, the parent being um, on edge and communicating edginess to a child, but through what's what's uh, uh, called epigenetics, mm. that some of the some of the uh, stress in the parent ultimately affects that person's genetics in ways that get passed on to the kid.
0: Yeah, I've read about I don't know if it was mice or rats, and I guess the experiment was giving them an electric shock when they did something I don't know hit a lever or something, and that. Their offspring then would avoid that lever, and then mm-hmm. the idea is that that experience has been passed down.
1: Yeah. Well, not the details of the experience. The that that's that's uh, that has been asserted, but it's not true. Okay. But rather, rather a sort of personality type of being on edge or ah. being being uh, suspicious uh, in any circumstance. So. If you're talking about rats or mice, you know how willing you are to venture out into an open area, a normal rat will do it, uh, I don't know, after 15, 20 seconds. It'll check out the space that it's in. And one of these these sort of jumpy animals will take more like 45 seconds or a minute.
0: Wow. I make a lot of references to you know, movies and, and, and books. So I'm sorry if some of these sound ridiculous, but uh, another sort of uh, idea, I guess, that's been asserted is that um we're able to notice that there's parts of the brain, I guess, that it seems like we're not actively using. Is that correct? No. No. Okay. <laughs> because this is, maybe it's just a movie thing, but the idea that... um if our brain was be was able to to fire on all cylinders at all times, and like all of the parts of your brain maybe were able to be active, that you could do something like read people's minds or telekinesis or something like that. That's just total hogwash. Yes. Okay.
1: Uh, in fact, you know, if you think about the biology, uh, nerve cells are consuming energy all the time. It, they need uh, to use energy just like like a battery to always be charged. Mm. Uh, And so your brain is burning up a huge amount of the calories that you bring in each day. If it were the case that we could shut it off, we would do so. If it was the case, if Mm. we could get by with less, we would do so. I mean, salamanders have taken that evolutionary route. They've found that that over thousands, millions of generations that having a tiny brain and not using it very much means that you don't have to go out in the scary world and find stuff to eat very much so you can just hang out under rocks. As long as you pass your genes on, you're just fine. With us, we are firing on all cylinders all the time, including when we're asleep, and using up energy all the time.
0: Okay, so this might also sound really silly, and I apologize if it is, but um, you mentioned when we're asleep. I had someone on the podcast who does work with dreams, right? Um, I would imagine that you're dealing with the observable, the measurable, the testable science, if that makes sense. Um, You know, there's some people who say that when we sleep, our consciousness goes somewhere else or there's um, other dimensions that we're not able to... Uh, access yet right um, maybe that's a, a, a quantum physics idea uh, is there, is there any th- anything to that type of thought um, that type of idea or do you only deal with the hey this is what I can see this is what I can measure
1: what I deal with is what I can measure but, but the things you can measure are pretty exciting mm. in their own right uh, there's lots increasing evidence now that uh, we rehearse significant experience during our sleep. That whatever happened during the day, the same neurons show the same activity while we're asleep. Some of it uh, in deep sleep where we're not dreaming, some of it when we're dreaming. Uh, and that the process of reactivating, replaying the tape, in other words... Uh, is part of what creates a memory that then we can have access to for the long term. That if we were to, and you can, you can measure when neurons, for example, in a rat, are starting to do this, show the same pattern of activity that the rat experienced when it was in a maze. If you interrupt that at that point, wow. if you prevent the rat from re-experiencing what it had done during the day, it won't remember the maze.
0: Wow. So then I would imagine that's even then maybe uh dreaming would be something that we evolved to do because there's a biological advantage to doing so.
1: Uh, the, it's always it's always uh, uh likely that that's something you see evolve to confer some kind of advantage. I don't know this for a fact, but my suspicion is that that the uh, Dreaming is giving us little glimpses of that process of gluing things down. little glimpses mm. of of relating things together that that uh, you either directly experienced or that uh, relate to things that you experienced.
0: Wow. Okay. I dropped a lot of pseudoscience there, so thank you for being gentle on me. For some of those things, <laughs> sounded really ridiculous. Um, is there a particular project or research that you're working on now that uh, you might want people to know about?
1: Um, well, the two things that that uh, that I that I put creative energy into are. Uh, looking at brain evolution and creating new programs for, uh, for exchange. Both of those are on hold right now because of the virus. Mm. Uh, I had a group of students uh, in, in March who were putting together an enrichment program that they were then going to present in a high school uh, in Columbia, a high school wow. that serves uh, uh, disadvantaged families. This would have been our second run through. We did it a year and a half ago. Fabulous on all sides. Uh, uh, I took eight students down who taught 60 Colombian high school kids, and everybody had a wonderful time. I would love to be able to do that again, but yeah. we had to shut it down.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, we mentioned that we we come from the world of education, so that is something that sounds really amazing for kids. Um, all right, well, first of all, again, I want to thank you uh, for first having the conversation, again, being gentle on me because this is something that uh, is largely outside of, of what I'm knowledgeable about, so I uh, appreciate you educating me on a lot of this stuff. Is there uh, a place where your work is collected or people can read your papers or a place you can send people to learn more
1: about uh, you? You can look up my my name online and you'll find stuff about uh, each of those those uh, avenues, uh, you'll find stuff. You'll find presentations and and published material about the birds, and also about the exchanges.
0: Okay, very very cool. All right, well, uh, again, thank you, Professor. This was really uh, really an honor. Thank you. It was fun for me too. Thank you. Great. That is a wrap on episode number one hundred and seventy five of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. I'll be on the road here for about another week. I'm actually hoping to record tomorrow, but I can't make any promises. But hopefully I'll get something out to you, you know, within this next week. Sometimes there's a bit of a delay when I'm actually on the road, but i got a couple of prospective interviewees here. So just uh, hit that subscribe button or follow along on some of the social media accounts to see what is coming down the pipe here. All right, folks, thank you again. And as always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you next time.